getting it all together uh, to bring presents forward and uh, make a bit of an offering for you all this evening. Um, so, you know, in, in preparing for this Dharma talk, I did a lot of looking at different resources and <clears throat> articles and books, and uh, the theme that kept running through it was, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Um, so as a result of that, I've had the opportunity for a lot of um, disenchantment and dispassion to show up. Because by the time I finished looking at all that I looked at and said, well, what, what can I tell them new? They've been hearing that all a month, maybe. I don't know, but <laughs> definitely for the two weeks that I've been here. Uh, so I listened to myself and I said, thank you for sharing. Get back to business. So <laughs> here I am. Um, It was very interesting because um, I'm going to be sharing just some observances and some thoughts on equanimity and um, was wanting to share from the perspective of Brahma-Vihara use or practice with equanimity. But equanimity is really all up in there in the Dharma. It's really all over the place. You know, it's not just um, within the context of the Brahma-Viharas and um, it, after a bit, I, I actually began to understand it wasn't so much about teasing equanimity out in its various um, forms and uses, um, but more about trying to give you a, a, a straightaway into understanding the holism that equanimity brings to the practice. Uh, so uh, we'll see what you think. I think it's really very um, timely, not only in terms of where you are in your retreat in relationship to equanimity, um, but where we all are in community and where this community exists in the world. That, um, you know, loving kindness is wonderful, wonderful, and serves a purpose. And compassion, uh, without compassion, we'd all just be our individual lumps on the log, trying to reach some nirvana. Um, and Adrian did a wonderful job of presenting Mudita last night and having that sympathetic joy for others. But it's really the, the, the saving grace to being able to live in this world today and to remain connected is to develop and cultivate some ability and capacity for presencing equanimity uh, as much as possible. So the four heavenly abodes, I'm going to talk about them all for a bit and then move into equanimity, um, are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or wise or ideal way of conduct for us beings. They provide a context to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity, long forgotten, revive joy and hope, 
long abandoned, and promote human brotherhood against the forces of egoism. The Brahma Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind. The Brahma Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind. That in and of itself is just enough reason to really engage passionately uh, with the Brahma Viharas. They're called abodes because they should become the mind's constant dwelling places where we feel at home. They should not remain merely places of rare and short visits, soon forgotten. In other words, our minds should be thoroughly and completely saturated by them. They should become our inseparable companions, and we should be mindful of them in all our common activities. As the Metta Sutta, the Song of Loving Kindness says, when standing, walking, sitting, lying down, whenever he feels free of tiredness, let him establish well this mindfulness. This, it is said, is the divine abode. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Equanimity, Upeka. They should be non-exclusive and impartial, not bound by selective preferences or prejudices. A mind that has attained that boundlessness as the Brahma-Viharas will not harbor any national, racial, religious, or class hatred. Until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with those mental attitudes, it will not be easy for us to affect that boundless application by a deliberate effort of will and to avoid consistently any kind or degree of partiality. To achieve that, in most cases, we shall have to use these four qualities not only as principles of conduct and objects of reflection, but also as subjects of methodical meditation, which is what we've been about for this whole retreat. Not some ancillary thing that we do in the afternoon, but a very integrative part of this practice. The practical aim is to achieve, with the help of these sublime states, those high stages of mental concentration or meditative absorption that we've been working with. The meditations on love, compassion, and sympathetic joy may each produce the attainment of the first three absorptions, while the meditation on equanimity will lead to the fourth absorption only in which equanimity is the most significant factor. Generally speaking, persistent meditative practice will have two effects. First, it will make these four qualities sink deep into the heart so that they become spontaneous attitudes not easily overthrown. Second, it will bring out and secure their boundless extension the unfolding of their all-embracing range. The ultimate aim of attaining these Brahma-Vihara concentrated states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis 
for the liberating insight into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. A mind that has achieved meditative absorption induced by the sublime states will be pure, tranquil, firm, collected, and free of selfishness. The mind will thus be well prepared for the final work of deliverance from suffering, which can be completed only through the establishment of insight. Methodical meditative practice will help love, compassion, joy, and equanimity to become spontaneous. It will help make the mind firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us to maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. In addition, when one's conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, the mind will harbor less resentment, tension, and irritability. These reverberations often subtly intrude into the hours of meditation, forming there the hindrance of restlessness. Our everyday life and thought has a strong influence on the meditative mind. It is only if the gap between them is persistently and consistently narrowed that there will be a chance for steady meditative deepening and growth leading us towards freedom. Tanisa Rabiku says, meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow, and the dangers from their opposites. As the Buddha says, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time to that his mind will bend and incline. That's the same concept of the story of the two wolves that I told when I did the Dharma talk last week. It is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows along like a song, but the man worthwhile is the man who can smile when everything goes dead wrong, or as I would say, to hell. <laughs> Definition of equanimity. So I like to go to the dictionary, because like I was saying to you all before, you know, the English language, I like to be really clear, especially when I'm talking about something that I haven't spoke about in this form before. And so I wanted to see what the English language, how the English language was defining equanimity. Evenness of mind, especially under stress, right disposition, balance. Both equanimity and equal are derived from equus, a Latin adjective meaning level or equal. Equanimity comes from the combination of equus and animus, soul or mind. In the Latin phrase, equo anima, which means with even mind, equanimity quickly came to suggest keeping a cool head under any sort of pressure, not merely when presented with a problem, and eventually it developed an extended sense for general balance and harmony. So for those of us who this word doesn't really resonate for, 
Uh, here's a couple of synonyms. Serenity, tranquility, calm, confidence, peace, poise, steadiness. When I read these definitions and I thought about, well, you know, where do I see this exemplify? You know, Mr. Barack Obama, just in his walk, exemplified equanimity and cool. Equanimity, when the mind is unperturbed by whatever experience is arising. Equanimity as a quality of balance. Each of us is touched by the eight worldly vicissitudes, or winds is probably how you've heard it, the factor of the endlessly changing condition of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. When we cultivate and develop equanimity, we can move through the waves of these vicissitudes with balance and ease. Equanimity as a divine abode. It is impartiality, equanimity's ability to hold all equally. It gives the other Brahma-viharas their boundless capacity. When we remain unmoved in the face of those who praise and blame, we remain able to seek the welfare of both. Equanimity as a wisdom aspect. The experience of meditative awareness. It is said that, and I quote, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. When attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. Like, are you hearing all the ways it says, let it go? <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> Non-preferential awareness supports understanding and insight into the three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, and the truth of selflessness. Equanimity as a parami, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, diligence, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. Patience and equanimity are considered the mainstays of support for the development and practice of all the other paramis. How do we strengthen equanimity? We forego attachment. Do whatever it is you do with your full commitment, but the outcome is beyond your control. When we act without attachment to the outcome, we allow our minds to remain peaceful and undisturbed, no matter how things unfold. Associate with wise and equanimous people. Practice it as a Brahma-vihara. Practice wise attention and continuous mindfulness. In our meditation practice, we practice inclining the mind toward equanimity and not becoming seduced by the pull of pleasant feelings. Cultivate a balanced mind, having an impartiality that embraces all. 
one of our teachers, Carol Wilson, the way she put it in the three month that I did was awareness does not care. (laughs) See, you got it, right? It's like a clear communication, a very clear communication. The Buddha says, there is no higher happiness than peace. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Looking at the world around us and looking into our own heart, we see clearly how difficult it is to attain and maintain balance of mind. Joseph Goldstein states, looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts, rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame. We feel how our heart responds to all this with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair, disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. And no sooner do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. How can we expect to get a footing on the crest of the waves? How can we erect the building of our lives in the midst of this ever restless ocean of existence, if not on the island of equanimity? The kind of equanimity required is based on vigilance, presence of mind, and not on indifferent dullness. It is the result of intentional, deliberate training, not the casual outcome of a passing mood or a should or this will get me somewhere if I do this practice. Equanimity would not deserve its name if it had to be produced by exertion again and again and again. If that was the case, it would surely be weakened and finally defeated by the vicissitudes of life. True equanimity, however, should be able to meet all these tests and to regenerate its strength from source within. It will possess the power of resistance and self-renewal only if it is rooted in insight. What is the nature of that insight? It is the clear understanding of how all these vicissitudes of the life originate and of our own true nature. We have to understand that the various experiences we undergo result from our, result from our karma. And I'm using karma like cause and effect. Our actions in thought word and deed, not those things that happen to us or come about in our lives that we did not generate by an action, a thought, or a deed performed in this life, and I'm going to keep it in this life. Karma is the womb from which we spring, and whether we like it or not, we are the inalienable owners of our deeds. But as soon as we have performed any action, or our control over it is lost. So let me read that again. As soon as we have performed any action, our control over it is lost. 
Thus, the pointing to of the importance of understanding and seeing intention actually at the point of arising before the action, thought, or deed moves out from the intention. It forever remains with us and inevitably returns to us as our due heritage. Nothing that happens to us comes from an outer hostile world far into ourselves. Everything is the outcome of our own deeds and actions and thoughts. So remember the distinction that I made. Also that karma is talking about conditions arising as a direct interaction with our thoughts and deeds. I want to make the distinction that suffering um, is being the state of reaction in relationship to some circumstance, some situation, or some condition that we find ourselves in. You know, one of the... um, clarifications I just wanted to give you and I you know I have to use as an example because this is where I'm coming from it's the people that I know so for instance you know a lot of times well people people will talk about um, here we go <coughs> about trauma um, and how that is understood through the lens of karma and what I want to um, point to is that uh, trauma especially when it's not like a natural disaster or something, but it's when you're being aggressed against um, as a child or as an adult, um, is about power and domination. And and whether it's the individual or the collective, like war, childhood abuse, enslavement, the Holocaust, always being generated by greed, aversion, and delusion, and our bodies just happen to be there when it happens. It's not something that we call to ourselves. You're born into a family where there are people who are unwise and are living out of greed, aversion, and delusion. Enslavement was totally originating out of greed, aversion, and delusion. Nothing to do with black people. You know, they came to Africa because they knew that we were used to being in the heat. Really. And that their investment on their return would not be lost because that group of people from which I come could tolerate the conditions mostly in the South in this country or in the Virgin Islands or in South America where the corn and the sugar and the tobacco were being grown and harvested that our bodies could take it because we grew up and lived in that kind of region. Because this knowledge frees us from fear, it is the first basis of equanimity. When in everything that befalls us, we only meet ourselves, why should we fear? All the various events of our lives being the result of our deeds will also be our friends, even if they bring us sorrow and pain. Our deeds return to us in a guise that often makes them unrecognizable. Sometimes our actions return to us in the way that others treat us sometimes as a thorough upheaval in our lives. Often the result are against our expectations or contrary to our wills. Such experiences point out to us consequences of our deeds we did not foresee. 
I'm going to tell you, my, my husband, I, I told this story once more, I think it was when I was here with Joseph, um, that includes um, his relationship at that time to greed, aversion, and delusion, um, and karma. So uh, my husband's a Brooklyn guy, you know, he grew up in Brooklyn, and um, was a young man in the 60s. And um, he grew up, uh, you know, working class family, but education wasn't really um, um, valued um, in the home in which he came from. So um, for him, which is still the true, true today for many people that joined the armed forces, he saw that joining the um, service was a way to move himself forward in terms of training and um, economic status. So, so he joined the army and uh, he got trained and he was trained as a, uh, a letter communicate office, office, working in the office. So he's working in the office, he's in the army and uh, he's doing fine. And then uh, he got the orders that transferred him to Alaska. Now this is a black guy from Brooklyn where Alaska was like about as alien as you could get in terms of um, environment. But he figured, you know, I'll, okay, I'll give it a try. So, so he goes to Alaska, follows his orders, and um, after about six months of that, you know, I forget what they call it, but like the sun doesn't set, and <laughs> you know, um, and so like after about six months of that, um, he woke up one morning, removed those heavy blinds so you can't see the sun at three o'clock in the morning, and um, he, he put the blind up, and there was a moose right at the window. <laughs> so, you know, moose, like their antlers, they're huge. I don't know if people, but they're huge. And he, so he put the shade up, and he was done. That was it. <laughs> so he's like, well, you know, where could I ask for a transfer to, you know? Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, he spoke to the guy that's in charge of transfers and stuff like that, and he put in a request to leave Alaska. And after a couple of days, the guy comes back to him, and he says, well, all orders are frozen except for Vietnam. So that's the only thing I can offer you, really, is to go to Vietnam. So my husband, Samaj is his name now, was James then. He said, well, I work in the office. I love warm weather. I'll be stationed somewhere in like somewhere where I'm just like doing the mail and it's a happy job. People are happy to get their letters from home and whatnot. No problem. He goes off to Vietnam. About a week after he arrived, um, the officer comes in and says, Williams, your details being changed. You're going to become the radio carrier. You're going to become the communications guy. He made the choice to go to Vietnam out of his aversion to being in Alaska. He was trained to carry the radio and for the next 18 months um, was in battle. And when you carry the radio, you, it's like a target on your back because that's the means of communication. So uh, for the next 18 months, he carried the radio in Vietnam. And I won't go into all the details of uh, what he saw and what happened. You know, we all know the horrors of war. Um, but he 
over time. And so, so the karma of that is that here he is, um, I guess, uh, 50 years later, because he's going to be 69 in June, 50 years later where he's having to um, deal with the vicissitudes of PTSD and how it's manifesting for him is in his physicality. Um, be, I don't know, you know, I guess there was some equanimity. I don't know, he's a, but his mind is right. He's fine in the mind and he's a very humorous, loving, gregarious man, but his body that took all that stress for the 18 months is now um, causing him lots of difficulty. So sometimes we make these decisions trying to get away from a situation or a condition or a circumstance which feels intolerable um, and we end up in places where we might never have imagined. So maybe you'll think of that story from time to time when you're uncomfortable. If we learn to see things through this angle of equanimity and to read the message conveyed by our own experience, then suffering too will be our friend. It will be a stern friend at times, but a truthful and well-meaning one who teaches us the most difficult subject, knowledge about ourselves, and warns us against the abysses towards which we are moving blindly. By looking at suffering as our teacher and friend, we shall better succeed in enduring it with equanimity. Consequently, the teaching of karma will give us a powerful impulse for freeing ourselves from karma, from those deeds which again and again throw us into the suffering of repeated births. And a lot of the understanding and um, engagement with the concept of karma, for me, the way I think about it, it's really about um, deconstructing a belief system and habit formations. Because sometimes it's hard to wrap the mind around this concept that we are the heirs for our deeds and actions and thoughts. It's so oppositional to how we're acculturated and conditioned here that really it's, it's hard to just make the jump, even through the practice, unless you understand that part of making that jump is deconstructing the belief that's holding you in place. Disgust will arise at our own craving, at our own delusion, at our own propensity to create situations which try our strength, our resistance, and our equanimity. The second insight on which equanimity should be based is the Buddha's teachings on no-self. To establish equanimity as an unshakable state of mind, one has to give up all possessive thoughts of mind, beginning with little things from which it is easy to detach oneself, and gradually working up to possessions and aims to which one's whole heart clings. One also has to give up the counterpart to such thoughts, all egoistic thoughts of self, beginning with a small section of one's own personality, with qualities of minor importance, with small weaknesses one clearly sees, and gradually working up to those emotions and aversions which one regards as the center of one's being. Thus, detachment should be practiced 
to the degree we forsake thoughts of mine or self, equanimity will enter our hearts. For how can anything we realize to be foreign and void of a self cause us agitation due to lust, hatred, or grief? Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states, but this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love, compassion, and sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that. Equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade and perfect equanimity. The four sublime states pervade and suffuse each other. Unbounded love guards compassion against turning into partiality, prevented from making discriminations by selecting and excluding, and thus protects it from falling into partiality or aversion. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, transformed and controlled, is part of the perfect equanimity, strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from forgetting that while both are enjoying or giving temporary and limited happiness, there still exist at the same time most dreadful states of suffering in the world. It reminds them that their happiness coexists with measureless misery, perhaps at the next doorstep. It is a reminder to love and sympathetic joy that there is more suffering in the world than they are able to mitigate, that after the effect of such mitigation has vanished, sorrow and pain are sure to arise anew until suffering is uprooted entirely at the attainment of freedom. Compassion does not allow that love and sympathetic joy shut themselves up against the wide world by confining themselves to a narrow sector of it. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from turning into states of self-satisfied complacency within a jealousy-guarded petty happiness. Compassion stirs and urges love to widen its sphere. It stirs and urges sympathetic joy to search for fresh nourishment. Thus, it helps both of them to grow into truly boundless states. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world. Sympathetic joy holds compassion back from becoming overwhelmed by the sight of the world's suffering, from being absorbed by it to the exclusion of everything else. Sympathetic joy relieves the tension of mind soothes the painful burning of the compassionate heart. It keeps compassion away from the melancholic brooding without purpose. 
from a futile sentimentality that merely weakens and consumes the strength of mind and heart. Sympathetic joy develops compassion into active sympathy. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinth of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity, being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. The mind infused with equanimity is unshakable because it is immutable. It is immutable because it clings to nothing. From the Buddha, for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This, verily, is the end of suffering. So in starting to come to a close, I'm going to read just a little bit from Ajahn Chah. Being Dharma, beyond cause and effect. Nirvana, it is said by the Buddha, is to be beyond becoming and birth. Speaking of entering this stream to nirvana, if there is genuine knowing within you, there is no one desiring anything. Further freedom is not a matter of wanting. It is not something you can desire. The Dharma is not something you can explain or give. It is something to be known within yourself. You have to have the realization in your own mind. You need to practice and realize. Then the marvelous will arise and be known by your own mind. There is a story in the scriptures 
of people asking the Buddha about nirvana. When he refused to elaborate on it, they began to say it was because he did not know. How could the Buddha not know? The point is that such a thing is to be realized by each individual. Those who believe others are said by the Buddha to be foolish. He said to listen to things and then contemplate to experience the truth of them. Listen without denying, receiving the words, not merely believing, but investigating the meaning. It is not so much a matter of believing or not believing. There are the two extremes. We lean towards either side, but we don't like to stay in the middle. This continues to be Ajahn Chah. The middle is the lonely way. When there is attraction, we go that way. When there is aversion, we go that way. Putting them down is lonely. We refuse to go there. The Buddha taught that neither extreme is the way of one who is tranquil. We need to be free of pleasure and pain, for neither is the way of peace. Once free of these things, we can be peaceful, thinking, I am so happy, is not it. That is just happiness for suffering in the future. These are things we have to be wary of, walking the path. We see the two extremes and keep going. We keep to the middle without desiring them because we want peace, not pleasure or pain. This is the correct path. The practice of Dharma is leading to the point of letting go. But we must have knowledge of things according to the truths in order to let go. When real knowledge arises, there will be endurance in the practice of Dharma. There will be enthusiastic, consistent effort. This is called practicing. Once you have gotten to the end, you don't need to use the Dharma. Like a saw that you sharpen to cut wood. Once the wood is cut, you put down the saw. You don't need to use it then. The saw is the Dharma. Dharma is the tool to help you attain path and fruition. Once we have accomplished this, we put it down. Once the job is done. Why would you keep holding the saw? The wood is the wood. The saw is the saw. This is about stopping having reached the essential point, the end of taints of craving and ignorance. The wood is cut. You don't have to cut anymore. You put the saw down. One who will practice must rely on the Dharma. That's someone who is not yet finished. But if the job is done, you don't have to do it anymore. You can naturally let go at that point with no more attachment and giving meaning to things. There is no need for any more doing. It is the state of peace. When we hear about it, we are full of doubts. What can it be? 
It seems so far away, but it is actually very close. It is something you can discover in your own mind. Things arise and you come to know they are not certain. This is not real. That is not real. Where is the real? Right there. Trying to surmise this is like this, that is like that, is not right. Let go of things. Put down the judging and the guessing. Go back and forth, passing it again and again. Then we are always in the state of suffering. End your doubts here. End your doubts and stop. Make an end of it right here, right now. Great knowledge is all-encompassing. Small knowledge is limited. Great words are inspiring. Small words are chatter. When we awake, our senses open. We get involved with our activities and our minds are distracted. Sometimes we hesitate, sometimes underhanded, and sometimes secretive. Little fears cause anxiety and great fears cause panic. Our words fly off like arrows, though we know what was right and what is wrong. We cling to our own point of view as though everything depended on it. And yet, our opinions have no permanence. Like autumn and winter, they gradually pass away. We are caught in the current and cannot return. We are tied up in knots like an old clogged drain. We are getting closer to death with no way to regain our youth. Joy, sorrow, and happiness, hope and fear, indecision and strength, humility and willingness, enthusiasm and insolence. Like music sounding from an empty reed or mushrooms rising from the warm, dark earth continually appear before us day and night. No one knows from whence they come. Don't worry about it. Let them be. How can we understand it all in one day? Let's sit for a moment. Poem for Closing, The Awakening. A time comes in your life when you finally get it, when in the midst of all your fears and insanity, you stop dead in your tracks and somewhere the voice inside your head cries out, enough, enough fighting and crying and blaming and struggling to hold on. 
Then, like a child quieting down after a tantrum, you blink back your tears and begin to look at the world through new eyes. This is your awakening. You realize it's time to stop hoping and waiting for something to change or for happiness, safety, and security to magically appear over the next horizon. You realize that in the real world, there aren't always fairy tale endings and that any guarantee of happily ever after must begin with you. And in the process, a sense of serenity is born of acceptance. You awaken to the fact that you are not perfect and that not everyone will always love, appreciate, or approve of who or what you are. And that's okay. They are entitled to their own views and opinions. You learn the importance of loving and championing yourself. And in the process, a sense of newfound confidence is born of self-approval. You stop complaining and blaming other people for the things they did to you or didn't do for you, and you learn that the only thing you can really count on is the unexpected. You learn that people don't always say what they mean or mean what they say, and that not everyone will always be there for you, and everything isn't always about you. So... You learn to stand on your own and to take care of yourself, and in the process, a sense of safety and security is born of self-reliance. You stop judging and pointing fingers, and you begin to accept people as they are and to overlook their shortcomings and human frailties, and in the process, a sense of peace and contentment is born of forgiveness. You learn to open up to new worlds and different points of view. You begin reassessing and redefining who you are and what you really stand for. You learn the difference between wanting and needing, and you begin to discard the doctrines and values that you've outgrown or should never have brought in to begin with. You learn that there is power and glory in creating and contributing and you stop maneuvering through life merely as a consumer looking for your next fix. You learn that principles such as honesty and integrity are not the outdated ideals of a bygone era, but the mortar that holds together the foundation upon which you must build a life. You learn that you don't know everything. It's not your job to save the world and that you can't teach a pig to sing. You learn the only cross to bear is the one you choose to carry and that martyrs get burned at the stake. Then you learn about love. You learn to look at relationships as they really are and not as you would have them be. You learn that alone does not mean lonely. You stop trying to control people, situations, and outcomes. You learn to distinguish between guilt and responsibility and the importance of setting boundaries and learning to say no. You also stop working so hard at putting your feelings aside, smoothing things over, and ignoring your needs. 
you learn that your body really is your temple. You begin to care for it and treat it with respect. You begin to eat a balanced diet, drinking more water, and taking more time to exercise. You learn that being tired fuels doubt, fear, and uncertainty, and so you take more time to rest. And just as few food fuels the body, laughter fuels our soul, so you take more time to laugh and play. You learn that for the most part, you get in life what you deserve and that much of life truly is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You learn that anything worth achieving is worth working for and that wishing for something to happen is different than working towards making it happen. More importantly, you learn that in order to achieve success, you need direction, discipline, and perseverance. You learn that no one can do it all alone and that it's okay to risk asking for help. You learn that the only thing you must truly fear is fear itself. You learn to step right into and through your fears because you know that whatever happens, you can handle it, and to give in to fear is to give away the right to live life on your own terms. You learn to fight for your life and not to squander it, living under a cloud of impending doom. You learn that life isn't always fair, you don't always get what you think you deserve, and that sometimes bad things happen to unsuspecting good people, and you learn not to always take it personally. You learn that nobody's punishing you, and everything isn't always somebody's fault. It's just life happening. You learn to admit when you were wrong and to build bridges instead of walls. You learn that negative feelings such as anger, envy, and resentment must be understood and redirected or they will suffocate the life out of you and poison the universe that surrounds you. You learn to be thankful and to take comfort in many of the simple things we take for granted, things that millions of people upon the earth can only dream about, a full refrigerator, clean running water, a soft, warm bed, and a long, hot shower. Then you begin to take responsibility for yourself, by yourself, and you make yourself a promise to never betray yourself and to never, ever settle for less than your heart's desire. You make it a point to keep smiling, to keep trusting, and to stay open to every wonderful possibility. You hang a wind chime outside your window so you can listen to the wind. Finally, with courage in your heart, you take a stand. You take a deep breath and you begin to design the life you want to live as best you can. Thank you for your practice and for your listening.
Have a restful evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.